Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Please keep your Bibles open with me there to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll be in a number of places in the book of Acts if you want to follow along with us there. This morning we continue our uh, sermon series in the history of redemption, now on, I believe, the 15th week, nearing the end as we're nearing the end of, um, in the middle of Advent here. Uh, This sermon series through the history of redemption has been accompanied by the Bible readings at uh, BibleTogether.com, and I encourage you to, to persevere, continue on there as we continue to see the, the story of redemption unfold throughout the Scriptures. So far in the story, we've seen many things. We've seen uh, at the beginning a, a people, uh, a, a people who were created by God in goodness and perfection, yet rebel against the Lord in sin and and plunge God's good creation into darkness, that very darkness into which Jesus has stepped in the incarnation, right? And even even yet, in the midst of that darkness, we've seen God's generosity and his grace as he is revealing for a people, moving a people through the covenants, revealing his redemption, making it known to them. And in recent weeks, we've seen the word made flesh in John chapter 1. We read through that passage this morning as well, at the beginning in our call to worship. We've seen the resurrection of Jesus, and we've seen Jesus' own explanation about himself, his purpose in coming to bring forgiveness of sin to all who call in faith to him. And now we come to Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2, here's a passage for you. Amazing what we see take place here. This morning's passage is utterly important as we continue in the unfolding of the history of redemption. In Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit. He's coming, and he's given to the seedling body of believers who then launch into a proclamation of the gospel. That's important. What happens here, first and foremost, is the the great bursting forth of the proclamation of the good news that is now known in Jesus Christ. And that proclamation will become the foundation for the whole of the church that comes after this day of Pentecost that the Lord has enabled by the giving of the Spirit. In our passage this morning, we see the Spirit of God rush upon this group of apostles just as Jesus had told them to wait and and what Jesus tells them there at the end of Luke chapter 24, the end of the passage that we studied last week, that he would clothe them with power from on high. And this this fulfills Jesus' promise that he would be with them and that he would empower them according to his promise just before he ascended. So this day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit in such a display of power is often referred to as the birth of the church. Now think about that for a moment. Is this the birth of the church that we see taking place before us in Acts chapter 2? Is that really the case? Is this really the beginning? And I would argue that there is a manner in which you could say yes, and then there's a manner in which it's important for us to observe, no, this is not the beginning of the church. On the one hand, it is not a birth. 
I mean, we've been paying attention. We're in the 15th week, not the first week, right, of the history of redemption. It's a continuing of an unfolding story. It's a continuation of God's purpose to fashion a people for himself, redeemed out from the curse of the fall. It's not a birth of a new people. It's an addition to an existing people. At the end of Acts chapter 2, at the, the very last phrases in verse 47, there it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a continuation of the unfolding of God's covenant of grace being revealed from one generation to the next, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, and now to Jesus and his completed, fulfilled work of all that came before. And now the Spirit comes to empower the disciples and their proclamation. So in one respect, it is not a beginning. On the other hand, all of the covenants and all of the proclamation up to this point have pointed forward to a mystery that was not yet revealed, right? We've, we've been speaking of a mystery that inside of this covenant is a proclamation of a redemption. Inside of all of this performance of the, of the sacrificial system, we're wondering, does the sacrifice really work? In all of the promise of blessing and curse, the people are saying, I think we're under curse. We don't keep the covenant, and so we don't receive the blessing, and yet we have held out this mystery of redemption. So with the incarnation of Jesus and the work of the gospel, the mystery of redemption that's always been in there, in those covenants, is now open for all to see and savor by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a new thing. That is something that has appeared on the scene. It's the sort of thing that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 31, that passage beginning in verse 34. It says, And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There is a redemption that has burst upon the scene and is now being proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in these disciples here in Acts chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit comes to establish a people of God upon the preaching of the mystery revealed, that the open proclamation of the gospel. That is the most amazing thing in Acts chapter 2. If we read the whole thing, we see the open proclamation by these disciples. Yes, Acts chapter 2, the portion that we read, begins with this miraculous happening of, of tongues as of fire and a rushing wind blowing upon the people. But what happens afterward is a, a preaching of the gospel breaks forth that, that sort of culminates in a sermon by the apostle Peter, all enabled by the Spirit of God. The amazing thing is the proclamation of the gospel and the effect that that has to lead the very people who cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus to cry out in repentance and faith. So the Holy Spirit closed the apostles and this seedling church with power to testify to the gospel, that, that this gospel that they're proclaiming is the very truth of God. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, as Romans puts it. This morning, we're going to 
not just look at Acts chapter 2. We begin there, but we'll also look at the, the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, as well as how it's described in the New Testament. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would give us a little bit of recall for those of us who are familiar with the story, that we could call forth some of what we know to be there, that you would help along those who are missing portions of the story, that you would help us to follow along and and give attention and perhaps have in us a hunger to say, I want to know, I want to follow, I want to understand your work, and that would give us a hunger for your word. And then in the middle of all of this, Lord, I pray that the gospel proclamation would be sure, that we would stand on the reality of your accomplished work and your spirit would empower that proclamation for the greatest miracle, which is light in darkness, which is the conversion of a lost soul, which is repentance and belief. Lord, empower that great work this morning. In the midst of the church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This morning, I would point us to four passages of Scripture. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot these down and spend time with them later in the week. These four passages in Acts uh, we give attention to to, in order to to see what the Holy Spirit is doing in this seedling church, the seedling church that's founded upon the mystery of God's covenants now revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. You got it? Acts chapter 2, 8, 10, and 19. These passages each record a truly extraordinary moment in the unfolding of redemption history. Each of these moments are something entirely unexpected. Well, what's unexpected? Let's see. Well, in Acts chapter 2, Following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves upon what's actually 120 disciples. That's where those who were gathered in the upper room, just as Jesus has said, waiting in Jerusalem that he would clothe them with power for the proclamation of the gospel. These disciples who were waiting in patient, prayerful, scripture-searching anticipation. We have a little paragraph that tells us what they were doing there. They were praying. They were opening the word, trying to be faithful as they wait. And the Holy Spirit sends them into the streets and they're bearing witness to the gospel among the Jews and among the proselytes that are gathered in Jerusalem on that day from every corner of the world. So what's happening in the streets of Jerusalem? Gospel proclamation. Faith-filled people of God gathered and worshiped in this way in Jerusalem for centuries. So what's bottom line happening in Acts chapter 2 is, is actually nothing of, well, it's remarkable that a people would worship God, but they've done this before, year after year at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But never before had that gathering of worship been interrupted this way by news of a resurrected and redeeming Messiah. That's new. The Spirit's work is that of bearing irrefutable witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is redemption for all who believe. I'm going to say it again. This is the Spirit's work, to bear irrefutable witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ is redemption for all, such an important word, for all who would 
believe. This is the essential work of the Spirit taking place in Acts chapter 2 and enabling that proclamation that all could hear and all who would receive it with faith would be saved. Then in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, Philip, he'd gone to Samaria and he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in Samaria. Now let's be clear to understand what that word Samaria means. Samaria is a land in the former northern kingdom of Israel that had been cut off from the worship at the temple and was full of idolatry. It was filled with syncretistic paganism, grabbing a little bit of of Judaism, a little bit of temple worship, but then importing it into the worship of these golden calves set up on their hills. All of this idolatry and syncretism taking place since shortly after the death of King Solomon 1,000 years ago. So a millennia in what is now known as Samaria is, is filled with idolatry. And what's Philip doing there? He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ among a people that everybody knows are just lost up there. Just leave them there in their false religion. Well, what happens? Well, when the people of the, in the city of Samaria, so filled with unclean spirits and sin, when they believed the gospel that was being preached there, we are told there was much joy in the city. It's what we're told in Acts chapter 9. There was much joy in that pagan city when the gospel is preached in Acts chapter 8. But, but who would believe such a far-fetched account that these pagans up north, these people who are filled with all manner of idolatrous false religion, who would believe the account that can even Samaritans be saved? If they, if they are, surely they aren't saved in the same way that the faithful Jews back in Jerusalem who, who worship at the temple and according to the law of God, surely they're not saved in the same way. But when the apostles, when, when the apostles laid their hands on them and in Samaria, the Holy Spirit bore irrefutable witness that these Samaritans were redeemed in, with the same gospel and they received the same spirit. The Holy Spirit gives a manifestation among the people that the word that's received in the heart, in the invisible place, that the Spirit is saying in a very visible fashion, these are my people in the same way, having received the same gospel, that you in Jerusalem are my people back in Acts chapter 2. And he continues, just two chapters later, Acts chapter 10. Peter is shocked. Peter's shocked when God himself seems to suggest that Gentiles are also redeemed and cleansed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gentiles. These aren't just like brothers who had wandered off after idolatry for a thousand years. These are Gentiles who have always been cut off since Adam, who have none of the word, none of the covenants. But when he finally comes to understand that God shows no partiality, any question he might have had about the salvation of the Gentiles is utterly erased when the Holy Spirit bears witness to their redemption and inclusion in the kingdom of God by pouring himself out among the Gentiles in Cornelius' household. So Cornelius, a Gentile, not a Jew, not a Samaritan, 
but a, a one who is far, far off believes and the Holy Spirit breaks out in a visible fashion and a, the apostle Peter's like, oh my goodness, the same gospel brings those who are far off into the same body. He's flabbergasted and asks, here's what he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Like the sort of baptism that you do in a Jewish ritual to demonstrate the cleansing of the Lord for sin? Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? And here's this, he says, just as we have. That little phrase, just as we have, is the central point of the Spirit's activity in all of these passages. It's a just as we have testimony that the Spirit has given. The Spirit is bearing irrefutable witness that just as there's one gospel and one hope of salvation, there is one people into which all of these various peoples are being saved. And then you have Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, there are a group of disciples of the John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, the one that came as a forerunner to Jesus, and he gathered quite a group of people. But not all the people went from John to Jesus. Some didn't really hear or understand the account and the work of Jesus in his crucifixion and his resurrection. And this group of of disciples of John the Baptist, now after the resurrection in Acts chapter 19, they, they heard John's call to repentance, but they don't seem to have understood the death and resurrection. And Paul goes to them and he preaches to these disciples that they would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Among them now, among the disciples of John, bears witness to all who were there that it's not merely a repentance of sin, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say, I know I'm a sinner, God. It's to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ on the foundation of what is proclaimed that he has died for you. He has suffered the wrath of God in your place. And he is raised so that you would have newness of life in him. It's faith in Jesus and that gospel by which a person is saved and brought into the household of God. And what does the Spirit do? He breaks out among them to say, yes, that gospel, only that gospel. But by that gospel, you're brought into all this group from, from Acts chapter 2 group and the Acts chapter 8 group and Acts chapter 10 group and now the Acts chapter 19 group. Here's what J.I. Packer has to say about this. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, seems to have understood his four cases of, of what are often called Pentecostal manifestations, because that's how, where the, the time, this Pentecostal festival in which the Holy Spirit breaks out in Acts chapter 2. He seems to understand these four cases as God's testimony to having accepted on equal footing in the new society, four classes of folk whose co-equality might hitherto otherwise have been doubted. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and disciples of John, all together in one body by means of one gospel. That is the proclamation of the one spirit. Now, don't let our modern context of multiculturalism confuse us on this and let us not see how amazing and utterly unprecedented such a statement is. What if the Spirit of God is revealing to the world 
He's, he's upending every natural religious presumption that the Lord, through, though, though he's the creator of all things, he, he works yet to redeem but one ethnic people, right? I mean, that would be a natural assumption. I mean, he's been working among us for forever. So, of course, when he comes in the flesh of one who is among us, looking like us, speaking our language and and participating in the worship, surely he's coming to redeem but one ethnic people. But no, in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophets and others and the Psalms, what he's actually doing is he's creating one people, yes, but not merely out of one ethnicity. He's creating a people out from among all of the nations and the peoples, and he's doing it by means of one gospel, and he's bearing testimony to it by his one spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ is salvation for all who believe. And the Spirit's work recorded for us in the Word tells us that the salvation brings that, that is brought to the people is once for all in Christ and his gospel alone. Now, this account of God's work to redeem one people out from the many is consistent with the testimony of the New Testament. It's often referred to with the language of baptism. So let's consider for just a moment, let's consider Paul's expression of baptism in one spirit. How the Apostle Paul takes the the record of the continuing unfolding of the history of redemption as the Spirit is saying, this is it. This gospel The person and the work of Jesus Christ is the thing we've all been waiting for, and it's going to work among all people. The Apostle Paul describes how that actually plays itself out. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. I encourage you, take notes on this. Go and read these and the context around them this week. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, it's First Corinthians. This is not First Jerusalem, all right? This is not first somewhere in Judea. This is in Corinth, in Greek, Gentile, super messed up congregation, Corinth. And yet we're told, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The emphasis upon all seems to be the same emphasis that God is making in our record in Acts. By creating a unique and explicit experience for each of these groups represented in the four passages that I mentioned above in the book of Acts. In Romans chapter 6, another example, in Romans 6, 3 through 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Who gets to do that? Like a special people, right? I mean, naturally, an ethnic people or or maybe a family or those who have the revelation for, for centuries and millennia. And the answer is no. Actually, all who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, that's who walks now in newness of life. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Who is in Messiah? Who has been clothed with all that Messiah has accomplished? As many of you as were baptized into him. And we have these four incredible accounts in which the Spirit says, no, it's not just that they're believing in their hearts. It's that I'm telling you on the outside in a visible manifestation, these people belong to the redeemed. It's true. The fact that the Holy Spirit made himself so evident in the lives of the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and these these disciples of John puts it beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. I think this is the, one of the most beautiful passages that we could go to on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And this is one that I would ask you, don't just put in your notes. Put in your mind and heart. This is one that belongs right here. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, I think I'm getting the point. (laughs) You hear how the passage begins? There's one body and one spirit. How do we know that there's one body and not, you know, maybe two or three, four redeemed bodies in various ways? One group of of Jewish believers and another subpar group of Gentile believers, and there's this middle ground of Samaritan believers. Well, because one spirit bore witness so boldly and publicly that all who are saved are saved by hearing and believing one gospel, one body, one Christ, one Lord. This is what happened in those days following the ascension of Jesus. And this is what's recorded for us in the authoritative word of God. It's recorded for us. Not just that they would know and have their minds blown by this reality of God's invasive force of his gospel to make one people out of many and those divided. No, it's for us. So that we can have the same confidence as the apostles that the Jews and Gentiles and all people have become through faith in Jesus Christ, one kingdom people. Don't lose how amazing that is. The Spirit bears a miraculous public witness to the invisible inner reality of the forgiveness of sin received by faith in the redemption accomplished by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the truth to which the Holy Spirit bears witness. Now, why are we talking about all this this morning? Why are we talking so much about the Holy Spirit? Why uh, We've got like two or three weeks left in this History of Redemption series. Why do we stop here? Well, let's go back and remember. Let's remember Adam, let's remember Abraham, and let's remember Jesus. Let's remember where we've come from in this history of redemption. The story began with God, right? Let's be clear. The story did not begin with Adam. Then the story would ultimately be about Adam. But no, it's it's about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As the culmination of God's work, 
of creation, God fashions a man and a woman. And he fashions these, these two, this, this new humanity to bear his image. Here's how he says it in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That together, as male and female, this new creation, that's the culmination of all of his work of creation, would bear his image. It's this man and woman together, Adam and Eve, who plunged all of humanity into rebellion and sin. Well, that's not what I was expecting. I just didn't know anything about the story. But that's what they did. They plunged humanity into sin and darkness so that that all who live, live under the curse of death. I wrote that sentence and I thought, that's a funny one. All who live, live under the curse of death. Friends, that's what it means to be spiritually dead. We have no hope. We're alive, like for now. But we don't really have life because we're under the curse of death and God's promise is sure. And that's what Adam and Eve plunged us into, all of humanity are united in this condition, each participating in the sin of our first parents and all facing the same righteous judgment of a holy God. Pause for a second. I said a word that's important for us to hear and understand while I start here. We are united together. One people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. But you don't want to write a song about this one. We are united together in the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, our first parents. All descend from them and all participate in their rebellion. One people. Man, I'm thankful that that didn't make its way into Ephesians chapter 4. Then, 12 chapters later, in Genesis 12, God comes to one man, Abraham. And we, we move from the condition of the whole of humanity to God's revelation to one man in humanity. What is God's promise to this one man, Abraham? It has two parts. First, that he would make Abraham a great nation, where the one man, Adam, would be the father of all people, and all would be united together in Adam. This one man, Abraham, would be the father of one distinct particular people. So now, all of a sudden, humanity is divided between all those who descend from Adam, which is everyone, and there's this subset of one people who, though descendants of Adam and subject to his curse, are also descendants of Abraham, according to the promise of God. This is what God is promising in Genesis chapter 12. It's among this people, this one man's people, according to the promise of God, that God would reveal his purpose to redeem. And that's the story we've been giving attention to for 15 weeks. That story playing its way out through this one man and his descendants being revealed there. It's a, it's a people who would reveal the right order of creation and the law. It's, a, it's by the, the covenant of the Lord that he would reveal to this people that we hear news of the hope of blessing, not just curse, We know all about that from Adam, but also news of blessing, even though even this people wind up under the curse because of their ongoing disobedience. They show themselves not so much to be a child of Abraham, but rather a child of Adam, because they never really kicked that habit. To this people, the Lord would hold out 
this people who have news of blessing, but still walk under curse. They're beginning to hear news not only of blessing and curse, but also of redemption and images of sacrifice, images of cleansing and forgiveness of sin. But there's another part of God's promise to Abraham. It's not just that he would become a great nation and that God would work amazing things and revealing himself and his covenants to this people. He also says, in you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the second part of the promise. That is, through your offspring, the Lord intends to bless and not curse to do something new rather than the old Adam thing. The Lord's use of the singular here is marked. God is not doing two things here. He's not, he's going to branch out, God God is going to do two things through Abraham. He's going to branch out a new people, beginning with Abraham, among whom he is going to reveal a covenant purpose to redeem. So he's going to branch out a purpose. And at the same time, he is going to focus in on a particular birth, a particular singular offspring, a unique individual seed of Abraham by whom this redemption would be revealed and finally accomplished. So we have a branching out of a people among whom God would reveal himself throughout centuries. And at the same time, he is narrowing down to one man, that one man Jesus the Christ. And so we have humanity in Adam together, united and cursed under the fall. And we have this subset of humanity, the Israelite people, the descendants of Abraham, receiving hope and receiving promise and receiving blessing. Now we have this redemption that appears in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So we are right to ask, and I wonder if you're asking, if you're following along here, is the redemption broadly, that, that, that narrowly comes through this one man, Jesus Christ, is it broadly for all of humanity in Adam? Or is this redemption narrowly for the descendants of Abraham? God had been making known the hope of redemption to a subset of humanity. So when that redemption appears in one man, is it only for that subset of humanity? Again, remember the promise to Abraham that through him, who? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that promise came so long ago, and the nations have lived in darkness for so very long. But it turns out that Jesus is that light. Jesus is that light that comes not only as the consolation of Israel, it's true, but also as the light of of the world. And by his gospel, he fashions a new people that are neither in Adam, and they're not actually in Abraham. They're in that one man, Jesus Christ. We have a new head. This is what the Holy Spirit comes to bear witness to. What is not natural to our minds, what's not natural to expect, even among those who were quite religious, that that through this small gathering of Jewish disciples in Jerusalem, waiting in an upper room, these 12 men who had followed Jesus and to whom Jesus had revealed the nature of the kingdom, 
that through these 120 men and women who were gathered in the upper room on that day, as they wait upon the Lord in faith, that through the proclamation of this small little subset of humanity, that they would go with the gospel into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And out of that proclamation, God would fashion one people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it turns out that the history of redemption isn't God slowly carving off segments of humanity to cut them off from the hope of redemption. It might be easy, especially in our self-centered nature, to believe that God is just sort of carving off people to just condemn them to hell. What's actually happening is God's purpose is to unite one people in the Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's about the Messiah and what he has accomplished to carve in a people into that one hope. It's the message of the gospel that there are none who are excluded from the call to faith in Jesus Christ, and there are none who come to him in faith who will be turned away, but all who repent and believe will be saved. There are a pile of implications in that. I want you to listen to it again, and I want you to consider what are the implications, what are the questions And what are the answers that the Scripture give to these two realities? The message of the gospel is that there are none who are excluded from the call to faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us today? What does it mean that there are none who come to him in faith who will be turned away, but that all who repent and believe will be saved? You see, the Holy Spirit closed the disciples in Acts chapter 2 with the power to proclaim the gospel. I think that's the number one and largest implication. That if it's true that there are none who are excluded, but all who hear and believe are saved, we've got to proclaim. Spirit of God, fill the room. Send out the room in all the languages of the nations. They got to hear that they haven't been carved off, but they have been called in. And secondly, when they come in and they look like the nations from which they came, which may not look like your nation, and when they act like the nations from which they came, which doesn't look like how your family does things, we say, we're one family. That's the gospel that we proclaimed. This is what he has done. It's my understanding of Acts within the context of the whole of the New Testament teaching on the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. These four passages, Acts 2 and Acts 8 and 10 and 19, are there to give Christ's church confidence. Confidence for all time that all who believe and are baptized are baptized into one faith. And all who are are made made beneficiaries of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So all who have believed have become a part of one body, the body of Jesus Christ. So we need not therefore expect God's ongoing extraordinary visible signs to accompany an individual's faith. We have the testimony of the word. He's already gone everywhere he needs to go. 
He's already incorporated every group that needs to be incorporated. So when we go, we don't need an external manifestation that it worked. We know it works. We we know that when someone confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, they will be saved. And we belong together now. We shouldn't expect or demand any extraordinary signs to come later to mark out the believer because we have the word that says it works. The gospel works. We can have confidence. That's the result of Acts. That's the result of the Spirit's work in Acts. We can have confidence. We belong together in one body. And so we trust his word. And we ourselves go in belief that the proclamation that we proclaim actually works the miracle it claims. Throughout the book of Acts, when we see a person or a group saved, we consistently see a few things. We see the word preached. We see a people receiving the word with eagerness. We see a people responding to the word of the gospel with, with faith and, and belief. And we, receive, we see a people receiving baptism with water as a sign of incorporation into the body of Christ. And we see a people who are changed, who are changed by the work of the Spirit in their lives. Brothers and sisters, it's by the Holy Spirit that we have been united together in the death of Jesus and in his resurrection. And our only hope is that by grace, through faith, the Holy Spirit of God has sealed us with salvation. Is that your hope? Is that your hope? I call you this morning, believe the gospel. Before I tell you that the first implication is that you would proclaim Perhaps the proclamation is happening right now, and the first implication for you is that you would believe. What is it? What is it that remains that has not been removed between you and the salvation that is secured in Christ? What hinders you from calling out to the Lord in faith and being grafted into this one body but this? that you would confess the Lord Jesus Christ, be forgiven of your sin, and be granted new life today. Today, this morning. And you can be sure, you too can have confidence by the testimony of the Spirit in the Word that you have been filled with grace. And for others, I call you to seek the things that are of the Spirit. Seek the things that are of the Spirit. I'm not saying... You can ignore the Spirit because we have the Word. I'm saying the Word tells us to seek the things that are of the Spirit. Well, what are they? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's fascinating. You want to know what is truly miraculous? You know what's astounding when you see it? What's what's extraordinary and unique and spiritual? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You tell me a people. You tell me a body where you've seen that before. And I'll tell you a place where the Holy Spirit has done a miraculously extraordinary work founded on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's saying. Strive to excel in the building up of the church by calling upon the Spirit and his word to work the very fruit of the Spirit in the lives of the church. That's how the church is built up. If we would see that fruit in our midst, we can be assured that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, all have been made to drink of one spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And for we who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptized into this one body, we've also surely been empowered by that spirit to proclaim. It is the implication, having believed that we have this word. And when we go with this word, I expect miracle. I anticipate that with the preaching of the word, this gospel of Jesus Christ, lives will be transformed and those who are far off will be brought near. Do you expect that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so much of the answers to the questions that are in our hearts as we consider the gospel, the spirit, the proclamation are yes and no. We do believe it and we don't. We do believe that you have grafted us into one body and we don't really act like it. We do believe that your proclamation will be met with miraculous transforming fruitfulness, but we don't do it because we're afraid. You've granted great confidence and yet we don't pray for boldness. Lord, I pray that your word would work in our midst applied to our hearts by your spirit even this morning, that you would grant the gift of faith even to the believing, that we would believe all the more, that our confidence would be buoyed, that we would be strengthened, that we would believe and proclaim in expectation that the history of redemption is now being unfolded by means of the proclamation of the mystery revealed. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the foundation of our faith. We thank you, Lord, that the proclamation has come to our ears that we might believe even this morning. And Lord, embolden us, strengthen us with this proclamation and allow us to see the miracle of the fruit of the Spirit in our midst. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, to his glory and the good of his church, we pray. Amen.